Southward Chronicles today on Adventure Rider Radio's exclusive travel series, the first series ever done like it. We've got Jeremy and Elle on while they're rather confused about the country they're in now. They've just made it through Machu Picchu. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the Dakar and its connection to the Nevada desert and adventure motorcycling. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. The cycle pump tire inflator has been proven to be the best motorcycle pump in the business. It's made by Best Rest Products, along with the tire iron, bead breaker, easy air tire gauge, and a bunch of other moto gear. Cyclepump.com. Don't chance losing your gear because your straps loosened or failed. Get Green Chili Adventure Gear. Heavy-duty, American-made, innovative luggage systems for all motorcycles, and you can turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage with their system. GreenChiliADV.com. Max BMW has four locations. They've got 45,000 parts and accessories available online to ready to ship to your door the moment you order. MAXBMW.com. series called Southward Chronicles, the ongoing saga of two riders traveling together on separate but parallel journeys. On this adventure, we've been following L. West and Jeremy Craker riding their own motorcycles, a BMW F700 and a KLR 650, respectively. They are a couple, but until they left on this adventure, their relationship had been a long-distance one. Living about 60 miles or 100 miles apart, they ride their own bikes now on this adventure, carry all their own gear, all of it, each carrying everything they need should they get separated or should they actually decide that it just isn't working out and they have to go their own ways. Now, so far, they've traveled Alberta, Canada, down through the U.S., Metro. Uh, Mexico, Central America, across the Darien Gap, uh, on the Stallrat sailing ship. They're um, now in uh, another country, which we're going to find out uh, which one that is. The schedule's getting tight for them. They've had breakdowns, they've had delays, they've had sicknesses, um, and their speeds, their general travel speeds seem to be slower than what they planned in a lot of cases. They need to get to Ushuaia, that turnaround point, uh, in the next maybe 30 days or so, or they're going to have to drastically change their plans. just got in mm-hmm. yep <laughs> yeah it's stinky well, was this quite an adventure um we pushed it and i think we've been pushing it a little later than usual because the sun's up much later now and we can get a few more miles in um but when we first arrived in this town we thought oh it's going to be close so we're talking to jim at this time and we are just pulling in 45 minutes boat before that um, and we went to the place that we had picked out and they were full. 
And we went, huh, this is a really small town. I don't think there are any other hotels. <laughs> and she said, oh, some lady over there down the road across from the mechanic place, she rents out places, just go to her. Well, okay, so go to a random house beside the mechanic place. Nope, wrong house. Oh, different house. Don't try that house. Oh, this is the right house. And she's full too, sends us to another house. So took a few tries. We did find a place. So you're staying at someone's house? We got house. offered by... Well, it is a, what they call it, an hospedaje. So she does rent out rooms, but it wasn't easy to spot from the road and it took a few tries to get here. Yeah, and, and today we spent most, uh, a better part of the day going 30 kilometers an hour oh. on a brutal gravel, oh. gravel section. The Rift at 40 is not happy with, I'm not happy with it today for sure. Jeremy and Al, we, we found you again. Mm-hmm. Yes. Where are you? We're in Argentina right now. Mm-hmm. Today, Elle and I were checking into a hotel and she said, what country are we in? And mm-hmm. I said, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we are in Argentina. Yes. Yeah. We've had a few adventures since we last talked. I think we spoke, uh, we were in Nazca in Peru and we were heading towards uh, Machu Picchu. And um, that was an adventure. Oh, did you yeah, get to Machu we, Picchu? Did you go see it? Cause, yeah, did. I did. You did. Oh, and you, did you take the tour? Mm-hmm. No. Well, what we did was we found a bit of a back way in. And Mm -hmm. I guess it's not that big of a secret. Most overlanders know about it. But because we didn't do any research, (laughs) we kind of found it all out as we as we showed up in Cusco. So um, they want you to take uh, an expensive train ride in from Cusco, see the sites and come back. Some people do it in one day um, from Cusco, which is a big, big day. It would have been like get up at 3 a.m., get on a bus to the train and the train to the bus, do all the stuff, do the tour, walk around the whole site, and then come back again probably early past mm-hmm. midnight mm-hmm. in the morning the next day. So, so what's the back we, road just between us? I won't tell anyone. That was yeah. No, it's not just between us. It's good and we should share it. So I first read it online. I think I was working night shifts who knows how many years ago and um, collecting notes of other people who'd written in places like Horizons Unlimited or Pan American Travelers Association on their Facebook pages. And it was Clinton Logan who actually wrote a note. And I jotted it down, but I didn't write the note in entirety because in my phone, I just kept a tiny little couple sentences. Back way to Machu Picchu, ride to Santa Teresa, um, catch a taxi to Hydroelectrica, and then walk along the train tracks for three hours. And that's all I wrote. So when I actually did this route, after Jeremy and I realized the tour would be pretty expensive, it would be a whole lot to do in one day, and it would probably be a lot more beautiful and enjoyable if we took a few days and did this back route after one guy at a hostel who rode a motorcycle confirmed that that's how he would do it too, and no, the road isn't too bad, and there's a couple paces that aren't paved, but it's awesome, and it's way better way to go. So we went, and it was fabulous. Mm -hmm. I loved it. I think it was maybe even my favorite road in all of Peru. The paved part was beautiful. Switchbacks, beautiful mountain views going up, 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 right up into the fog where it's cold. And there's ladies herding their sheep and goats and alpacas and beautiful colored outfits. And then past Santa Maria to the town of Santa Teresa is not paved at all. But it's also beautiful and fabulous and 
Yeah. Yeah. It was there's, good. there's pictures of the, you know, the famous death roads that you see in Bolivia and um, the trampoline of death and whatnot. This road was comparable uh, as far as scenery goes. And um, it was a much better experience, I think, doing Machu Picchu this way. Uh, it just meant a lot of extra walking, though, which was a bit bit uh, boring for my tired joints. But otherwise, it was great. Three and it took hours. a lot more time. We spent about a week. Yeah. I think it was closer to four. Yeah, closer to four hours, I think. Wow. And you're just walking along the train track. So sometimes it's gravelly under your feet. Sometimes you're just beside the, and it's a beautiful river and birds singing. And other times it's just boring and mm-hmm. dogs following you looking for snacks. <laughs> yeah, and that gets you to Aguas Calientes. And then from there you take, uh, well, you can walk up to the, the site. Which is just stairs. Just a slog. So we, uh, we took a bus. We took a bus. And then we came back and we thought, well, hurry, we'll just finish because there seems to be two shifts to go to Machu Picchu to see the actual site. You go in the morning or the afternoon. And so most people go in the morning and leave somewhere around noon-ish and then the next group goes in or the next whole entrance of a thousand people. So we thought, hey, if we're done by noon, we could walk back along those train tracks for three hours in the afternoon and get back to our motorcycles the very same day. And we did not do that. We were tired of walking. So there was hot springs, natural hot springs in the middle of the mountains, outdoor, beautiful. And then there were some more we found out in the town of Santa Teresa, too. So we took a couple extra days to enjoy those. Yeah, it turned into a a walking tour of Machu Picchu, followed by uh, hot springs visits everywhere we went. Yeah. Nice. I bet you were tired by the time you got back to your bikes. Oh, man. It was, for me, it was actually a little bit too much walking. Um, I found out after the fact that, yes, you can actually catch the train from Hydroelectrica. Um, you pay a tourist price. The locals get it for dirt cheap, um, but that would save uh, four hours each way of walking. Mm-hmm. So in uh, the future, that's how I would do it. So I wouldn't do much walking because when you get to Machu Picchu, there's so much walking to do there. All right. So the track you're walking on, that's the train that's taking everybody there. Mm-hmm. It, it's the train that takes mostly locals in and out of Aguas Calientes. Uh, it's not the train that most tourists take that leaves from, I forget the town, but it's in between Cus, um, Cusco and Machu Picchu yeah. somewhere. It might be the actual same train, but this is a different section of tracks than most people would be on from Cusco. Yeah. So it's mostly local people who uh, use that train where we're walking along the tracks. So for those who don't know, describe Machu Picchu. It's awesome, I think. It's one of those places that almost nobody is going to see fresh when you get there because you've all seen photos, National Geographic or other travelers or Instagram. We've all seen photos of it. But still, to me, the site itself, the archaeology of it was interesting and the just the view. Mm-hmm. Like even if this archaeological site didn't exist on top of this mountain peak, just being up on the mountain peak that high mm-hmm. in the clouds with just a fabulous view, every single direction you look all around you was fabulous in itself. It, it's amazing. And the steep terraces, uh, they have llamas there and or is it alpacas? I think they have alpacas roaming around cropping the grass and um, on these steep terraces. And what I liked about it was some of the things that you don't really see in most of the photos. We walked up and up and up to the, the sun gate, I think it was called. Mm-hmm. And um, then we walked uh, to the um, bridge, Inca bridge. The Inca bridge, right? Mm-hmm. So some of these trails that they have are just amazing, steep. And uh, the engineering that went into that and the, the 
human effort to create these things is mind boggling. It is, yeah. And the day we got our tickets was before in Aguas Calientes. And I didn't read every single bit of it in Spanish, but there were some little pictures at the bottom. And so I asked the guy who I bought the ticket from, what does this mean? Because I was having troubles deciphering one of the little pictures. Like, you're not allowed to bring tripods. You're not allowed to bring walking sticks. You're not allowed to bring food. You're not allowed to bring drones. And I'm like, what is this one picture of a human, like a little person? What are they dancing? Are you not allowed to dance? And he said, no, that's a naked person. You're not allowed to be naked. And I went, what? Why do you even need to say that? And sure enough, when we got to Machu Picchu, guess what we saw? A bunch of guys getting naked because then they get to have their bare bum in the photo of the famous Machu Picchu in the background, right? Mm -hmm. And we saw people eating all kinds of food. So we locked up our backpacks at these lockers that are at the entrance. And I didn't bring anything in with me except my camera because it said no food, no water, no this, no that. And every other human being, which is like a thousand in that site, they had food. And they had water and we saw tripods. Is it like a movie theater where they don't want you to bring food because they want you to buy theirs? No, there was nowhere to buy any. I think people leave garbage and stuff behind maybe. Yeah, I think it's to keep the site fairly pristine. But we did see every rule that was listed we saw broken except for we didn't see drones. Yeah. So all we had was um, we had a bag of cocoa, uh, cocoa leaves. leaves. Yeah, we learned yeah. how to chew those to help keep your hunger at bay. Yeah. So we were chomping the leaves and that's and all we had. And after four hours of walking and walking and walking around, you're hungry and thirsty. Yeah. yeah. Did you get much out of the cocoa leaves? I didn't notice anything. But what I, you know what I did notice was um, maybe it actually did keep hunger at bay. And maybe, I don't know, it might have given me a little advantage when we were climbing the steps. Maybe I wasn't quite so uh, winded as I would have been without them. But if there is an effect, it is extremely subtle, unless you're chewing a fistful of them. I don't know. Yeah, we talked about that. And we weren't sure if there was really a noticeable difference or not. You'd have to do that all one day and then do it again, the same thing the next day with them and without them to compare, really. Mm-hmm. Well, make sure when you come back home, you, you get a whole bunch of those and stuff them into your saddlebag. Got across the border with those, yeah. <laughs> El, you mentioned about how everyone's seen Machu Picchu. Did that sort of take away from the experience? Like, like if, if you could have, you could go back, would you n- rather not see it? And then sort of be surprised when you walk in? I mean, maybe, but I don't know if that's possible. In today's day with so much Instagram, internet, Facebook, like everybody's seen some of that. I think it gave me some idea of what to expect. I'm not disappointed that I knew what I was going to see. In fact, if I was going to do it again, I would do more research and learn a little bit more about it so that I had more appreciation for what I was seeing like understanding the importance of one structure and how these three windows are in it and what they thought the three windows represented and how the sun rose on a particular day of the year at a certain angle to make a shadow in an exact specific place. That's pretty interesting stuff. And I had not done much research before I went. So I would learn more. What do you guys make of the the, the state of advancement of the culture that, that you're looking at, the ruins from the culture that you're looking at? Well, from what I understand, this particular location was not a typical city. This was like the king's palace. But um, I don't know. He either must have been really rich or people really loved him. Like, I don't really have an understanding. I can't quite comprehend 
how much work that would take because some of these pieces of stone are enormous and um we did try to hire a guide once we got up there we found a guy who was speaking english and agreed to be our guide but then if we got a group of a certain number of people um then we would go and he kept trying to find more people and couldn't and he said just go ahead i'll meet you up at this point and he never did so we had no guide. <laughs> and I did try to like listen in a little bit here and there when I heard other groups going with their guide. And one of them showed a particular location where underneath the rock, there was a cylindrical rock and it was left behind. And he said that cylindrical rock was one of the ones that they used for a roller. This is what they used to help move some of these giant pieces of rock into place. And here was one left behind so we could see. Um even with these cylindrical rollers, I still don't understand how how many people it would take, how long it would take, and how much effort it would take to build this place. It's mind-boggling. And for me, I was mostly impressed with the setting. So like Elle was saying, even if there hadn't been any um, evidence of human development up there, just being up there was amazing. You look down these impossible banks, and of course, um, if it hadn't been cleared, you couldn't see anything. Um but it's just gorgeous. Uh, the the mountains are so green and every surface imaginable has something living and growing on it. Well, let's talk motorcycle adventure. What, what yeah. was it like from there to the border of Argentina? Well, we had a few adventures after we left Machu Picchu. We walked out and then we got on our motorcycles and we drove that beautiful gravel road heading towards Cusco. Uh, we were going to spend Christmas in Oyan de Tambo. And as I am uh, leaving the gravel road and we're just getting onto the highway, uh, I noticed that I had a uh, bolt sheared off of my luggage frame. So, um, And there were some battery troubles around this time too. We did a push start that day. Yeah, that's right. So again, my, my battery is conking out and then I discover this broken bolt. So we uh, push start me. I wrap everything up as best I can with straps and it'll get me to the next town. And then the plan is we're going to spend three days in Oyente Tambo relaxing. I was going to finish an article that I was working on for Canada Moto Guide, uh, but it turned into three days of bike maintenance. So I had to find uh, a welder to uh, get that bolt out. It was it was sheared right off, and we had to find a new battery, which was very difficult to do um, in that little area. Yeah, it took a couple of towns and about five different shops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my relaxing day turned into. Uh, bit of a, a working holiday. I think the locals enjoyed seeing the push start. <laughs> they did. Yeah, we were all geared up and ready to go. Luggage strapped onto the bikes, all our helmets on and gear on, ready to go. Start your engines and no, I need a push start. Mm -hmm. So here we go, running up and down the hill, pushing Jeremy. <laughs> nope, not the first time. Okay, push again. And they just lean against their door jams and watch us. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah. The, um, the bolt that broke off, what, what bolt? Is this a subframe bolt or is this a bolt for your luggage rack? Well, this one, the first time I noticed the bolt sheared off, it was for my luggage system. So um, you may recall, oh shoot, did we talk to you about Cordillera Blanca? And mm -hmm. okay, we did talk to you about that. Uh, a few days earlier, I had taken a little off, uh, crashed my motorcycle a little bit and bent some things out of place. Well, it turns out that one of the bolts got extra bent and uh, the vibration and whatnot sheared it off. So that was just a luggage rack. But then when we got to Cusco, after getting my new battery 
and bending everything back into shape and replacing the bolts that I thought were missing, then... Once again, we got geared up in the morning, put all the luggage on the bikes, put all our gear on, put our helmets on, started our motors, and then I hear Jeremy say, oh, we're not going anywhere We're not today. going anywhere. So that was a subframe bolt that had sheared off. So um, I the, spent a day in the Cusco. The subframe bolt. Yeah, that's right. The front mm-hmm. one, yeah, which, which is a known one. problem yeah. for, for KLRs. It's something that people often replace with a, a harder bolt. Did you do a mod to that before you left? No, I had planned on it and kind of ran out of time with everything else going on. So uh, these were stock bolts. And yes, I have had a, a sheared subframe bolt in the past. So um, I took it to uh, a place in town where they removed my entire subframe uh, just to get at that broken bolt. Um, they didn't need to do that, but that was their solution. Um, and then so I upgraded them now. So they're, they're not stronger steel exactly, but they're thicker diameter. So they, they bored them out and they tapped them and um, I should be good to go now. That's the theory anyway. Yeah. So it took us a few tries to leave Cusco. We yeah. weren't even planning on being there. I think Mike from Motolumbia had written, hey, we'll be on this date if you want to meet up. And we said, no, we will not be there on that date. We should be much further south by that time. And we were not. Yeah, and Peru has some pretty strict guidelines about how long you're allowed to be in the country with your motorcycle. So the clock was ticking and we were actually getting a little bit stressed about leaving on time mm-hmm. and then bam, subframe bolt. And then when I was getting that fixed, then Al got sick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we were actually really against the clock for a little while there leaving Peru. Yeah. Counting down the days. So it, it, what would you have done if you couldn't get the the bike repaired in time, but you've got to get it out of the country? We talked about this. Um, I think I would have rented a truck and driven it out of the country or driven it to the border. And then L would have towed me across. <laughs> Which um, happens a lot. We, yeah, that's, <laughs> it seems to be a regular thing. <laughs> uh, so I hear that they, they've actually laxed um, some of their policies. They used to be like, if you were a day late leaving with your motorcycle, they just took your motorcycle. Uh, I think that policy has since changed, but uh, they're still pretty strict about it. So we were nervous, but we got out in time. After spending some time visiting Lake Titicaca and the floating islands. Um, so, yeah, we did manage to get out and into the next country. I wasn't feeling great that day. I was, in fact, Jeremy made a comment. He said, Well, we were going to leave and this happened and we were going to leave and this happened. What's it going to be tomorrow? What's going to be the thing that stops us from leaving? And after he spent all day chasing around town, finding a place to get a subframe bolt fixed, he came back and I said, well, I know what's going to be our problem tomorrow. <laughs> I don't think I can leave the room. Like my stomach is just gurgling and grumbling and making all kinds of noise and not settled at all. And uh, it wasn't awful. I was able to leave, but it was touch and go. But I was eager to get out of Cusco and get a move on. So Jeremy, thankfully, was uh, my savior that night. I got to the hotel in Puno and I went to bed immediately. And I did not get up for, I think, about 14 hours. Mm -hmm. And then saltines were brought to me at bedside and that saved my life. (laughs) Crackers. Yeah. It was the only food I could keep down. And yeah, it worked. Salt. I'm glad you've recovered fully. Yeah. You mentioned Jeremy Lake, is too. <laughs> you mentioned Lake Titicaca. Can you talk about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big, big giant lake. <laughs> <laughs> it's the highest navigable lake in the world, I, I understand. I believe that is accurate, yeah. 
and I wasn't prepared for the size of it. Um, we we did take a tour out to these floating islands, well, floating islands. So they're actually human built islands made out of um, reeds, and, and it's an ancient uh, practice. And it's fascinating how they do it. They they carve blocks out of the out of the earth, and then they float them together and tie them down, and stake them down, and eventually the roots from this earth grow together and make it a pretty solid structure. And the whole thing is tied to an anchor point because it would float all over the place. And not all of this lake is in Peru. Some of it is in Bolivia. Mm -hmm. So they could feasibly fall asleep at night and wake up floating over to the other side in a different country. So they actually have to stake him down, which I never knew. What's the Mm -hmm. point of the island? That's where they live. Yeah, these people live on these islands. Um, And I forget the name of the people group. But uh, once again, we didn't do much research. We just kind of went on this tour. And there's arguments for and against these tours. Uh, Some say it's tourists exploiting, you know, the the lifestyles of these people. But it also injects a lot of um, money into their economy now. And uh, they're happy to have people uh, from what we could gather, at least. They were very friendly and welcoming. and. And they seem to have a pretty good system in place. So there's many different islands, and some of them are quite small. Like the one we visited had six families, Mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. That's the whole size of the island. And so there is a guard when the tour boat first comes into the area that tells you which island you get to visit that day. So they Mm -hmm. have a system where they take turns and give some islands a chance to rest or some islands a chance to Mm -hmm. make money. And they have handmade goods and things they want to sell you. And they seemed quite friendly and happy to have us. I like the idea of building the island. I, th- I think it was Mark Twain that said to invest in real estate. They don't make it anymore. Um, I think they do a little bit in yep. Hawaii. But um, in this case, they certainly do. Yes. Yeah, it, it's really interesting. And when you do walk on this um, island, you actually can feel the water below you. Like yeah. you can feel the island moving a little bit. You stay dry. It's perfectly dry. But um, it feels like walking on like muskeg in northern, not, you know, northern Alberta. Yeah. You mentioned you didn't do much research. You went to Lake Titicaca. What was your destination there? Puno. Uh, We were heading for uh, just a town basically to set us up for leaving the next day into uh, Bolivia. So we were just trying to get away from Cusco um, and get as close to the border as we could. Uh, And then we actually tacked on a little tour that day. Uh, So the next day after arriving in Puno, we did a tour in the morning. We went out to these islands. We spent all after, or all morning there. Then we came back to the motorcycles, loaded up, and then we actually went into uh, Bolivia. So it was a big day. Now, what was your border crossing like into Bolivia? The border crossings in South America, Jim, compared to, to Central, Central America, have been a traveler's dream. Yeah. We have just been crossing effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, we can stop for photos, and even with all of you know getting snacks and things, it's still forty-five minutes max. I think they're about forty-five minute crossings. Now. And there was the Bolivia-Peru one. There was people there offering the very much the same services that you'd find in Central America. There's money changers. There's people selling snacks. But the people who are changing money, they have a little desk and a little chair and they sit at the side of the road and they call out to you as you come by and they say, hey, cambio, cambio. You look at them, you say, thank you. And you keep walking and that's it. They don't have to run up to you and grab you and accost you like the guys in Central America do. I found that so refreshing. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. uh, These crossings have been just absolutely fantastic. And again, crossing from 
Uh, Chile and Argentina was super easy. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy behind the desk in Bolivia, too, I said, is it necessary to have insurance for Bolivia? And he got me a piece of paper and he highlighted the one line for me and he gave it to me to keep. And it said, if you are in the country for less than 30 days, it is not required. Perfect. Thank you. So you didn't get it. Nope, not for Bolivia. What will you do if you get in an accident? I think for some of these countries, even if you did buy the required insurance at the border, you still might be paying out of pocket when it comes to an accident. Mm -hmm. So I don't have a whole lot of faith that this required insurance is going to save me all the headache that might be needed if I did get in an accident. Mm -hmm. I would try not to. I would hope not to. And, um, yeah, I would expect that there's going to be a big headache if there is an accident either way. Up to this border, how, how are you guys feeling traveling? Uh, has it changed at all? Generally speaking, South America is more interesting, exciting, feeling more adventurous because it's new. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is we're moving so much and, you know, like today was a big day as well. Uh, we've been having fairly big days over and over and over again. Uh, now that's partly due to our habit of getting up a little bit later than the average motorcycle traveler, I think. We're not, um, you know, we're not up with the roosters, but um, we're constantly moving. And, and I do find that it is tiring. Every now and then we take a rest day somewhere. And sometimes we take a rest day by accident, simply by like way oversleeping mm-hmm. our alarm and then being like, well, I guess we could stay here another day. Yeah. Um, I think the theme of this trip so far has been that we're hurrying a little more than we wish we needed to. Well, it's such a big amount of space to cover. And of course, you know that. Everybody knows that. But when you're actually doing it, then it feels like the space grows somehow. Like Mm -hmm. I'm watching the markers now on uh, Ruta 40. They actually count down to the end of Ruta 40. And, you know, a couple days ago, it was... 4,000 kilometers. And now yesterday was 3,000 and today it's 2,000. And I still feel like, come on, like 2,000 <laughs> kilometers still. This is, this is not, not going to stop. Long is road. It? Yeah. Yeah. And, and is this, this pressure that, or this feeling of, of having to go all the time, does that stifle your exploration? No, I, I don't think so. I think maybe it sounds like I'm complaining. I'm actually enjoying the process of moving every day. Um, but it it is tiring. I would say that there's definitely some things that we've skipped, but we do hope to still see them at some point. Yeah. Our trip is not done when we reach Ushuaia. That's Mm-mm. just the point we want to be at before it starts to get too cold. Yeah. So ideally, before the end of the month would yeah. be nice. Yeah. But then we still have lots of time to explore on the way back. There's a couple things like um, we haven't done any Amazon trips. No. Nope. We didn't go to the Galapagos. We need to do the death road in Bolivia. Uh, no, we have, we've got some things saved for the way back to. And it was funny because the other day I was saying to Elle, okay, we have to start making some distance here. So let's do five back-to-back 500-kilometer days. We can do that, right? Yep, sure. And then I think the next day we did 200 kilometers <laughs> because we hit some some bad roads and also we looked at stuff. And then the next day it was like 300 kilometers. And I was like, okay, let's just forget the idea of doing back-to-back big days Let's just get up every day and put some more miles and on. put some more kilometers beneath us. Uh, today, for example, we were looking at a section of road and we wanted to do this many kilometers. And after probably about half an hour on the road, it turned into some of the worst washboarded and soft gravel road that I've ever experienced. 
Um, so we were right, right down to first gear going third, you know, 30 kilometers an hour or something like that. And, um, the Bowling scenery was beautiful. Washboard. Yeah. The like, dust was crazy. And, you know, every now and then your front end is washing this way and that way. And, um, you kind of clench up and, uh, it was slow going. Mm-hmm. I guess the, the, it's one thing to look at the distance between the two cities or towns you're, you're going to and from. It's another to consider that surface that you're riding along. Yeah. yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. And we were actually at a bit of a disadvantage today too, because we hadn't eaten for about 24 hours in Argentina. They've got this, uh, we're having trouble with meals in Argentina. Yeah, very they've much. got this maddening habit of shutting everything down at 1 PM mm-hmm. and then not opening any- everything. Like we even found a gas station today that was just closed Yeah, and they don't have their hours posted on the door and say, Oh, between 1 PM and 4 PM are closed. It's just, they just are closed. That's it. Yeah. Grocery stores close in the middle of the day. Big fat supermarkets. They're just closed for a couple hours in the middle of the afternoon. And restaurants that we go to repeatedly, we say, hey, can we order some food? And they say, no, you can have a drink, but we don't have any kitchen open right now. And I'm like, oh, okay. And they say later when it's supper time, that's when we'll open. Oh, okay. It's early, I guess. Like, really? Is it early? I didn't think it was that early. It's like 5.30, maybe 6 o'clock. Huh. So when, when is later? What time do you open the kitchen? Oh, 8. What? 8, yeah. 8 p.m. So after, we're, it's right now, uh, just after 8.30 here when we're talking to you. So we're going to go eat supper we're gonna wrap at 9 up. o'clock at night. Yeah, we're going to go for supper at <laughs> 9 or 9.30. That's when Argentinian people eat supper. And if you don't eat lunch before 1, 32 o'clock, you're out of luck. They're just going to be closed. So I don't know. I guess people go home for lunch around 2 o'clock. But if you don't have a home, eh, you're packing a lot of peanuts in your pocket and a couple of bananas in your tank bag and that's it. Yeah. So yesterday, because of circumstances, we missed supper. Uh, which means you don't get to eat again basically until 24 hours late, like the breakfast that they do here. Right. Even when you get breakfast, it's not breakfast. So we tried finding a couple places and I'm like, look, look, it says day. So, you know, that means breakfast. Let's go there. And I have in my mind like an omelette, a big fat omelette with cheese and vegetables. <laughs> and I'm going to have some potatoes and maybe hash browns. Like everybody has potatoes. Every country in the world does some kind of potatoes and oh, a big fat glass of orange juice and this is going to be so good. I'm so hungry. And they go, yeah, we have desayuno, but that's it. Just coffee with milk or coffee without milk. Those are your only choices. They give you a little biscuit or a piece of toast, but that's it. It's basically like a biscotti and coffee. And that's breakfast everywhere we've been so far. Yeah, the hotels and the Mm -hmm. hostels that have breakfast included, that's what breakfast is. That's it. They don't eat eggs at breakfast. So the locals are doing that too. That that seems to be a local thing then. Yeah. So we have to figure out uh, a workaround for that. And and today, because of the gravel um, that we weren't expecting, we missed lunch. So it had been pretty much 24 hours since I'd eaten anything. I, last night at the hostel, I found a, a hamburger <laughs> bun that somebody had left in the take it or leave it bin. So I ate that. That was my dinner. Wait a and, second. Uh, Wait a second. The take it or leave it bin? Yeah, you know how hostels sometimes have like a free area. This is food left behind by other people Mm. or you buy something, but you don't need all of it and you don't want to carry it with you like half a bottle of cooking oil. So people leave it behind. Mm -hmm. There was a hamburger bun. There was a hamburger bun. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure it had been on the floor because (laughs) when I ate it, it felt like I was crunching some gravel. Incredible what hunger will do for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was ready. I was ready to eat anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How far are you guys now from Ushuaia? 
2,500 kilometers before the end of Route of 40. And then once that ends, we still have to cross into Chile, take a ferry, cross out of Chile back into Argentina again and get to Ushuaia. Let's call it more or less 3,000 kilometers, Mm -hmm. something like that. Right. And and of course, that doesn't mean anything time-wise, does it? I mean, you have no idea really how long this is going to take. At least a week, probably more. Yeah. I'd like to see a few things along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, we, we've been moving the date back and forth a few times now, but I, I think we're still going to hit it uh, in in January. Mm-hmm. It might be January 31st, but I think we'll be there um, at the end of January. Now, is Ushuaia the halfway mark for you, both time and distance? Uh, Mid-February is halfway for time for me. Um as far as distance goes, yeah, roughly. That's mm-hmm. the halfway point. Yeah. Well, because I was thinking of all the detours you're planning, you know, on the way back, because you said you wanted to see other things. So, you know, taking that mm-hmm. in, into into consideration, I guess, with your, your detours you've done so far. But the halfway into February, that that's not very many days um, away from the actual halfway point of uh, of time. So if you mm-hmm. run into yeah. any problems that are, are, are that delay you more than what you've already delayed, you could end up arriving back too late. And for Jeremy, that's for work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Uh, we could do a few things to tighten up the uh, the journey. Like there are faster roads that we could select. If, if I just all of a sudden had to make it back, barring any motorcycle problems, of course, um, I we could save a lot of time by selecting faster roads and putting in longer days and getting up earlier, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we do have, we do have a bit of a buffer zone, yeah. Have you have you done any sort of thought into the the um, idea at least of maybe leaving the bike and flying back and then coming back to finish? I have thought about it. Um, I've actually thought about selling the bike or just abandoning it somewhere. Um, <laughs> there's different ways you can do it. Uh, in fact, believe it or not, laugh though you may. KLRs are actually in high demand here. So mm. I could sell my bike for more than what I paid for it, even with all of those miles on it. But um, I'd have to find a buyer willing to do a little uh, shady negotiation. It's it's easier to do in some countries than others. And um, some of the motorcycles that get sold in South America are done without proper paperwork. Mm. Um, so I'm not, I'm not entirely sure I'm comfortable with that, but there are ways that I could probably um, relieve myself of the motorcycle and fly home. But to be honest, I think I'm just going to take it all the way back. I mean, to sell it, you you end up not having your bike, which is kind of nice after you've done a trip like this when you get back. And I'm I'm sure you think about that with it. But how much of a profit do you think there is to be made if you sold it? Well, I've heard some people talking about like offering 10,000 US dollars for a used beat up KLR 650. Wow. In um, Argentina, I'm not sure, but in um, was it Ecuador? Ecuador, that's right. So Ecuador and uh, a few other countries that we're hearing rumors of, they're actually like sought after bikes. You could you could um, make some is, money and have an adventure as well by doing planning to do that. I mean, obviously it's not mm-hmm. really legal, but um, it's an interesting it's thought. Not really legal. Yeah, what I could do, and this could potentially be a legal way to, to work around it, is I could get onto the forums and see if there's any Canadian who wants to fly down to Argentina and buy a motorcycle and drive it back to Canada. Right. Um, 
there, there could be a way to do that. So the, the bike never, you know, technically leaves Canada as far as importation goes. Um, but finding the right person to do that, um, would be a bit of a challenge. And, and again, I'm not really keen to do it either. I'm looking forward to riding the bike all the way back after I've had these flat tire problems. And, um, now that I've got a new battery and a few other things have been fixed along the way, the bike is actually, you know, knock on wood, treating me really well. Well, as everyone who's listened to you guys on this adventure knows, it was a long-distance relationship until you started out on this trip. You're both traveling with your own gear um, just in case mm-hmm. you need to split. How, how's that relationship mm-hmm. looking right now? <laughs> you don't get to pass it off to me. You want to say something, too? Uh, I think mm. it's, yeah, I think it's great. Um, we are settling into a routine and traveling well together. We're still communicating fairly well together with the occasional um, dropped ball here and there from either Elle or me. So we've had a few uh, days of uh, irritation with one another, as you would expect on a trip like this. Um, but in my mind, it's all been pretty minor stuff, and I think we've gotten it resolved. Um, yeah, I'm happy with the way things are going. Um, being an introvert... I still do sometimes crave some alone time, which I'm, I'm feeling a little bit um, unable to get. But that's, that's not to be confused with time away from L specifically. It's just time with me by myself. So um, that's, not a, that's not a problem either. It's just something that's difficult to, to carve out on a trip like this. L, your thoughts? I think there's been some fabulous times and some challenging times as well. There's been days when I've been even a little worried, like I'm getting really used to spending every day with Jeremy and being together this much. What if it doesn't stay this way? Then what's like, that'll be a big adjustment. What if he does go back sooner than me? Oh, that's, I'm going to miss him actually. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I might actually miss this guy. Do you find that you have strengths and weaknesses between you that sort of um, play opposite to each other where where it really is advantageous? And I think some of it is just timing too. Like when one person is incredibly grumpy and tired and the other person is not, that's great. Then he doesn't bother you and you can laugh it off and wait till they eat some food or have a nap and they'll get better. But there's been also times when both of us were both grumpy the one day in particular. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. Jeremy was like, I'm so hungry. I just need to eat and I don't care where I'm going to pick this place right here. And I said, fine, you go right ahead. And I drove away. (laughs) We had exchanged some words previous to that and I was not happy at all. And then I thought, am I leaving him to eat at that restaurant while I go eat at this restaurant just to be petty? Or do I really not want to eat with him? And I thought, nope. I really have no desire to eat food with him at all right now. There's nothing that we can say to each other that's going to make this better. We just we need to both eat. We're both starving. We didn't eat breakfast. And uh, until we both get some food in us and some time to sit down and breathe, let's not even try talking to each other. Yeah, that day we stomped our feet a little bit and we uh, both ate lunch at separate locations. Um, <laughs> like across the street from each other almost. Sorry to yeah. laugh, but I mean, it's, it's funny yeah. when you think about it now, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it, was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. But uh, on a positive note, um, the words that we did exchange were still respectful and there was no name calling or anything like that. So it was well within 
uh, I think was well within, you know, the confines of normal, uh, frustration with your travel partner. And, you know, we talked about it a few days later too, and kind of got to the root of it. And it, it turned out to be a good thing. I mean, not the way we handled it in the moment necessarily, but I think the way we handled it afterwards, um, it was fine. What do you think that looked like to anyone who was watching that interaction? Uh, well, we've actually, seen it in other people and yeah, we've, we've been walking right. down the streets in really touristy places. And we saw just the other couple of days ago, there was a male, female couple and she was mad at him. You could tell, I don't know what words she was saying. I couldn't make them out, but you could tell she was unhappy. And I go, look, Jeremy, look, that's us three days ago. Aren't you glad we're not there now? Yeah. yeah we actually did most of our, uh, communicating when our helmets were on through mm-hmm. the comm system. So we were, it looked like two people just riding motorcycles, but what you couldn't hear was the bickering back and forth. Right. Yeah. So they might have just saw your helmet shaking back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And one bike stop here and the other keep going. Yeah. You're really in a pressure cooker, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's this situation you're, you're almost stuck together, working through things together, running into things you, you can't anticipate in many cases. This is like the ultimate sort of test, it's, it's either going to make or break you. Do you think that that's a good way to do this? <laughs> I could argue both, I think. Well, yeah. So I, I had a friend who used to counsel people. Um, he'd say, oh, you're thinking about getting married? Well, here's what you need to do. Go on a two-week canoe trip with one another. <laughs> and if you're still talking at the end of that trip, uh, then you can get married. And he thought that that was the, the crucible, really, putting people together in a situation that is a bit stressful. And there's some um, power dynamics going on when you're both navigating or when one of you is or one of you suggests. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. When one of you thought the other one was and they weren't. And then you go, where are we? Why are we driving down this road? Well, I thought we were turning there. Oh, that was the turn. Oops. Yeah. yeah. So. Yes, it is difficult and it can be stressful and it's it's a good proving ground. I don't know if I would recommend it for other people, but um, I think we're doing okay. Um, there's been some tough times, but there's also been some awesome stuff. Like for me, that day when I was sick, man, I was rough. Like I was gross. <laughs> and Jeremy did not want to get up and go out and find some store in some town where he doesn't know how to ask for the thing he needs and get me the one thing that I really, 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 really want. And when he came back with those saltines, I was like, you're amazing. That's the best thing I could have asked for. This is exactly what I needed right now. And I love having the bar set that low. Yeah. <laughs> I can just go All and I have saltines. to do is get a bag of crackers and she thinks that I saved her life. So yeah, that's good too. And then when we come across places together, when we are traveling well, and the road isn't horrible, and we're not like scared that we're running out of gas any moment. And we just come across a place like we did here in northern Argentina. Um, that was amazing. There was about six or seven spots along the road that were marked as tourist sites to see, um, like Banff and Jasper style tourist attractions. Mm-hmm. And we were so amazed, like awestruck at the surroundings around us that we both didn't concern each other when one wanted to stop for photos, even though it was 10 seconds after we just already stopped for photos. And we both were just quiet and silent and stunned by the surroundings around us and stood there and took it all in. That was a beautiful thing to experience together, I think. Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned. And now we have language built too. I can be like that place, you know, with the red rock and the mm-hmm. one that looked like a frog and that guy. And we're building a lot together too. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that um, you're arguing in the comms really, and people can't see what you're mm-hmm. doing. Do the comms, do, do they make it easy to argue? Mm, else, else, <laughs> else nodding her head. Yes. And I was going to say no. Uh, I don't know. The comms really help. I, can't believe we were going to do this trip without them. So thanks again to Motology School for providing those. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. No, we, we don't really argue. We don't really bicker in the comms that often. It was just that one day. Uh, th- there's a grumpy version of L and there's a grumpy version of Jeremy. And normally those two grumpy versions of each other don't see each other at the same time. But that day they did. So... Mm. I mean, what you're describing happens. Every couple has been through arguments. Um, so, I mean, it's always yeah. easy to sit and listen to somebody else and say, oh, that sounds so terrible. Uh, but we've mm-hmm. all been there. You know, we've, we've all done those sorts of things. I just think that what you guys are doing is that, that pressure cooker thing that makes it even worse. You mentioned your friend that does the, uh, that would mention the canoe trip being the mm-hmm. ultimate uh, test. We used to have it with, with kayaking. We used to call the double kayaks divorce boats <laughs> because <laughs> you'd put a couple in and guaranteed yeah. you're going to have arguments because yeah. everyone's out of their element to some degree. And mm-hmm. then you start to, you tend to go after the people I think that you can depend on the most. I th- and, I, and I really think the reason we're so rough on our, our loved ones is because we know we're going to get away with it. You wouldn't do it with a stranger. The stranger would walk away or hit you in the head. Mm-hmm. But we'll do it to our loved ones. It's a terrible thing, but we we do it. You know, it, it seems to be the way that humans work. And I think sometimes that one is just the person who happens to be there, the one that's around the most often. So when you do blow up, that's the one who's most likely to get the backlash. Mm. But if you think about um, it, but, if a stranger had walked up, you probably wouldn't approach them with the same way, you, you know, you would with Jeremy or Jeremy with you. There's a comfort level and a confidence mm-hmm. in the outcome, like, a, you know, in there that, that makes it somehow in a, in a twisted way, almost okay to do it at the, in the moment. And I I think if you build some some good points ahead of time and afterwards, too, like even today when that road got rough, I think Jeremy was trying to be supportive and encouraging. So he turns the comm system on. You're doing great. Oh, this gravel is awful, isn't it? Look how round and smooth these pieces of gravel are. Who decided to put this kind of gravel on this road? And I'm thinking you're trying to like validate my feelings and help me feel good. But I can't talk like this road is so bad and I'm trying so hard just to concentrate on not falling over because my bike is like swimming and squiggling from side to side underneath me in this stupid gravel. I can't talk right now, but I wasn't able to form all those words at the same time as not fall over. So I just shut the comm system off, you know, but I can also come to Jeremy half an hour later and say, hey, I think you were trying to be supportive. Thank you for doing that. It's just on this kind of road, I need to concentrate. Can't talk at the same time. Yeah, it was actually funny. I had a similar thing happen just the other day because we were on the route of 40 and there was a washout and there was like a river flowing across the road and lots of mud. It wasn't that (laughs) deep, but it was, it was muddy. It looked awful. Yeah. So I'm approaching it and I'm just about to go through it. And I'm like, okay, Jeremy, concentrate now. You got this. You can do this. And and then I hear Elle on the comm system going, (laughs) she was just yelling and all I could do was like slap the side of my head to switch yeah. my comms off because that wasn't helping me at the moment. <laughs> so you can you can shut the person off too, which is great. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Have, have you had any revelations uh, uh, about your bikes or your gear, um, you know, since we last talked or even over the whole trip? We just keep shedding more and more stuff. Still, you're still like shedding constantly. gear. And things fall apart. Like well, the other day, my uh, visor, I have a pinlock system. So the two sit two shields and it just fell out. It fell out while I was driving and I tried to like reach up and grab it, but I just hit it, didn't grab it. And it bounced off me and flew across the road. And I stopped and I drove up and down and I walked up and down and I tried to find it. And I'm like, well, there's just another piece of my stuff that's no longer with me and, and left and no somewhere. In, Who knows? No intention on replacing it. I would love to replace it. Do you know how hard it is to find an awry helmet in this country or anywhere on this continent? Yeah. South America does not have a no. lot of awry products. I've been trying since Colombia because my visor actually got scratched up pretty badly back in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. So I've been looking for an awry. And I didn't think I'd find one in Nicaragua. That wasn't an expectation. But here, I thought I would. I have yet to find an awry helmet or that's, any store that stocks them. That's something to keep in mind, isn't it? The, the, the gear yeah. that you're taking, <laughs> if you're taking real high-end gear. What gear is yeah. common there, do you know? Um, I just know that Arai is like one of the most expensive brands. And so it's not going to go in the places that aren't really expensive. And yet I've seen Shoei down here. Yeah. So they're also neck and neck with prices yeah. for Arai in Canada, at least. For their high So end. you, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, no, I'm, I'm pretty happy with my clothing setup. Um, you know, if, if I had more money, <laughs> I think I would have a different motorcycle and I would have different luggage and I would have different this and different that. But for what I can afford, um, KLR with my setup is okay. I'm loving, uh, I've got a Moscow Moto uh, tank bag. Um, that's the only piece of equipment I think that I would like keep. If I was, <laughs> if I had all the money in the world, I would keep that thing. It's been great. Um, everything else would get a little tweak here and there, but it comes what's, down to money. What's wrong with the KLR? Are you going to get all kinds of hate mail from this? <laughs> oh, yeah, all kinds of hate mail. The KLR is a loved motorcycle, and I've had several of them, and I've done big, big trips with them, like this one, and I rode around the Middle East and all of that kind of stuff. Um, sometimes it would be nice to have a little less weight and a little more power. Mm. But but then I might also get myself into trouble. There have been a few times where I've been enjoying myself on these curves. Uh, maybe if I had uh, a faster, more powerful motorcycle, I might enjoy myself too much and get into trouble. I don't know. Um, a couple of times I would like to hit the throttle and accelerate out of a turn, um, but I don't. I can't. I, I've reached the maximum velocity of a KLR650 loaded down like mine is at this elevation. L, for your, your bike or gear? Um, since I lost my computer back in Peru, I've kind of enjoyed carrying a little bit less weight around. And I've been thinking more and more about simplifying stuff. I really like my hard panniers because they're lockable. So today, for example, we have to go up a very skinny flight of stairs through a skinny gate to get up to our room from where we're parked. And I don't want to have to carry everything if I don't need it. I'm just going to sleep for one night and go again in the morning. So I don't need all my stuff. And I can leave those hard cases and just lock them. I love that feature. But they're big, they're heavy, they're bulky. If I don't need a computer, like something that really needs to be protected in a waterproof, dustproof case, then it's just clothing and tools and stuff like camping gear. I, don't, I think I might go for soft luggage mm -hmm. if I was to do it again. Mm -hmm. 
I think the same thing. Uh, my my aluminum uh, panniers are now uh, dented and bent, and the frame has you know taken a beating. So I, I might look at a different um, luggage system. But every time you you do that, you'll you know you'll want for something more. They call it the paradox of choice. Um, there's a TED talk on it. The more choice a person has, the more choices, the more options, the less satisfied with their choices they tend to be. The more you doubt mm-hmm. the choice yeah. you made. Yeah. So if you're like, okay, here's two motorcycles. You've got to pick one and do a trip. You're pretty happy with your selection. But if you have a thousand motorcycles to pick from, you always think, ah, maybe I could have done better. Yeah. So, and quite often people can't make a decision. You give them more. I mean, the, the standard is uh, that I've learned is that to break it into three, give people three options. You know, we used to do this a lot for guiding, uh, you know, with giving people options. But you, if you have too many options, people will get paralyzed mm-hmm. often. They look at it, they just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I've seen that before. Um, I've gone to some motorcycle rallies and, um, you know, where we talk about travel and things like this. And some people get trapped in the planning stage and it's so overwhelming and so daunting now there's me on the other end of the spectrum where i don't really do much planning at all um maybe this is a happy medium and there's somewhere i don't know but um yeah choice can be debilitating well, I guess the next time we talk, you're going to be in Ushuaia at the halfway mark. Mm-hmm. Any uh, apprehensions um, or anything you're looking forward to on the way? Uh, no apprehensions. I'm still really keen to be uh, tra- traveling south with this lovely lady, and I'm uh, I'm happy to see some new territory. And hopefully, we see some penguins. Yeah, I want to see some penguins. We saw some ostriches the other day, or what I thought were ostriches. Um, Some kind of small ostrich, like a rhea, I think is what it was called. Yeah. Never so. knew those existed in Bolivia, but I guess they do. Yeah. Wow. So I'm looking forward to some, you know, seeing some new wildlife and um, dipping my feet in the ocean. My eardrum is still uh, healing up, so I'm not going to dunk my head anytime soon. But um, yeah, I'm just looking forward to more. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm already like, I'm not quite at the point where I'm beginning to dread the end of the trip yet, but I think that will come up pretty soon. <laughs> How do I how do I keep doing this? And yeah. uh, any chance yeah. that you'll scuttle the job and, and just stay at it? Um, well, never say never. But uh, <laughs> at this point, I think I need to go back and, money. and make some money because mm-hmm. of the things that have been happening uh, with the condo and my budget and stuff like that. You guys stay safe, ride safe, and we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jim. That was Jeremy Craker and Al West on our ARR exclusive travel series, Southward Chronicles. Stay tuned for more in the coming months as we follow their journey to Ushuaia. We've got links to their social media accounts in the show notes for this episode, but I encourage you to follow them along on Instagram and Twitter at Jeremy underscore Craker and L on Wheels. Those full links are in the show notes for this episode. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to chat with Jimmy Lewis, who helped train the Dakar motorcycle winner this year, about the race itself and the connection with adventure motorcycling. Stay with us.
Cyclops Adventure Sports designs and builds lighting systems and more for motorcycles. It's a family business of riders, just like you and I. Now, they've got some incredible offerings for LED lighting, plug-and-play style for your bike, or like headlight replacements, that sort of thing. But what I want to mention to you today and what I want you to look at is their Evo turn signals. Now, as a rider, you know one of the biggest problems with traffic is being seen. That's just proven again and again, and I'm sure you've run into it again and again. Being seen when you're stopped at a light, or being seen when you're waiting to make a left-hand turn at that light, or maybe being seen when a vehicle is about to pull out in front of you. The fact is, motorcycles are too often missed. And this is the idea of, uh, of auxiliary lighting, at least some of the idea of auxiliary lighting. The system that Cyclops has engineered right from scratch changes your front turn signals into super bright driving lights and then they're used as signals as well. And then it also changes your rear signals into super bright brake lights, and then they also work as signals as well. So this adds incredible visibility to your bike, not to mention a very cool effect if you think about it. Um, why would the lights just sit there off? It makes no sense to me. Put them to good use. It's their Evo turn signal system. The website, cyclopsadventuresports.com. And uh, of course, anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. I doubt that any two riders any two riders have exactly the same expectations or style of riding, same skill level, same thrill-seeking, same taste for adventure. But no matter your style, no matter your expectations, IMS Products has a foot peg to fit you. Now, here's what I mean. They make a large foot peg called their ADV series. They have a one and two, which are really large platforms, the largest I've ever seen. They're designed for large adventure bikes, particularly large adventure bikes that see a lot of highway miles and some fire road riding, that sort of thing. Uh, They have a non-aggressive foot peg on them. So two models in there. Then they've got, as you go down, they've got their core um, and their enduro pegs, which are smaller with more aggressive tooth design on them. So they've got the full gamut covered, no matter what style of riding you like. The smaller pegs are better if you're doing more technical things and you're doing more hardcore riding, uh, that sort of thing. All IMS foot pegs are made from the toughest, cast-certified 17-4 stainless steel. They use a certified heat-treating and homogenizing process. Uh, They're built in the USA, and they come with a lifetime warranty. It's imsproducts.com. And please, when you talk to them, mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. imsproducts.com. Dakar is the toughest race in the world, attracting international sponsors of factory teams with top riders and drivers of motorcycles, cars, trucks, and quads. The stakes are high, as it is in racing, but due to many factors, the speeds, the miles covered, the inevitable fatigue, and having to navigate difficult terrain, makes mistakes on the Dakar sometimes deadly. Yet year after year, racers line up and plunk down huge sums of money for the privilege of being part of this international race. Well, this year, for the first time ever for North America, a U.S. rider, Ricky Brabeck, won the motorcycle class. 
And when that news hit, if you'd been standing near Pahrump in the Nevada desert, well, you probably would have heard some howling. And it wouldn't have been the coyotes. No, it would have been Jimmy Lewis. Because it was Jimmy's training that was part of what went behind that win. Jimmy himself is an ex-racer. He has also stood on the Dakar podium in his day of racing. He now considers himself an adventure rider. And even if you don't follow the Dakar or you're not interested in the racing, Jimmy thinks that adventure motorcycling has its roots in the Dakar. And it still has a connection. So, Jimmy, you're, you're kind of celebrating right now with um, with some wins. Uh, yeah, I had a really good... Um uh, Dakar experience this year and I uh, Paris to Dakar it was what it used to be called it's the Dakar rally now it took place in Saudi Arabia and uh, a couple of the guys I trained won their uh, the motorcycle class so Ricky Brabeck on a Honda um, I work with them you know extensively here in, in the U.S. doing a lot of navigation training he's, he's the overall winner on this one he's the he's the overall winner on the motorcycle yes wow and, uh, so that's, that's huge. It's something we've been working to, to, you know, for the, I don't know how many years it's, it feels like four or five years we've been working on this. And, uh, and then also on the side-by-side class, which is, uh, it's its second year running there. Uh, another American Casey Curry and his navigator, Sean Berryman won the side-by-side class. So I'm pretty, pretty stoked. I mean, we're, we're doing something right. It, it makes the, uh, makes the program look like it's working. Now, is this the first American motorcycle win? Correct. It's the first American win in any in any class. Um, oh. So uh, we've had Danny Laporte, uh, who was uh, doing the rally previous to when I was doing it back in the day, uh, got second place. And then both myself and Chris Blaze have uh, stood on the podium in, in years past. So but this is the first time we've had a win. Well, that's got to feel really good on your end. Um, it was a stressful two weeks. <laughs> Ricky has Johnny Campbell, who's, you know, 11 time Baja 1000 winner. Johnny Campbell is over there with him, you know, working with Honda and, and, uh, kind of in his court, you know, to help you just manage everything. Uh, Johnny cooks some breakfast every morning. <laughs> so, so, uh, you got, you got the, you got the, you know, the, the, the Baja champion cooking you breakfast, but it's a big, big team effort. I mean, but ultimately he's the guy that gets on the motorcycle and, you know, puts it all out there and goes fast when he has to go fast. For those who don't follow it, what, what exactly is the Dakar? Uh, the Dakar is a, a motorcycle or, you know, it's a motorcycle, cars, trucks, um, quads, side-by-sides, endurance rally that takes place for anywhere from 10 to 21 days. Uh, every day they do, eh, maybe on the short end, they'll do 300-kilometer days, but they do up to seven, eight, 900-kilometer days of racing. And it's all done with essentially map books. So you, you, don't, you don't have a GPS that tells you where to go. You have to interpret notes in a, in a scrolling map book or, you know, in the hand, in the, in the cars, there's like flipping pages a little bit like what you see in maybe world rally, but not like that. In that world rally, they're telling them what speed to go around, what turn here, they're telling them which direction to go, where, how to, you know, find your way through these passes, um, over the mountains and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's definitely a speed contest for sure, but it takes uh, a large amount of, you know, navigation skill as well. So is that unique to the Dakar, the way they do the navigation or is, or do they do it the same as many other rallies? Uh, there's, there's, they, they call them like kind of desert rallies, um, more than, uh, 
you know, it, cause it is they're actually it's called cross country rally is the, is quote the discipline of what it is. And so you're, you're covering large distances and it's, there's a world rally championship, um, you know, cross country rally championship, uh, for cars and also for bikes. And so, yeah, it's its own, it's its own discipline, but the Dakar is by far and away the pinnacle of it. It's, it's like, you know, it's the super bowl. It's the, it's the one everybody trains for and wants to win. It's considered the toughest race in the world. Um, yes, <laughs> for, for, for surviving, uh, you know, <laughs> as far as it's tough on, on uh, machine, it's tough on, uh, body, it's tough on the mind. Um, it's a long one. There's been a lot of deaths in it as well. I mean, you know, it's like, it's a very serious race with serious consequences for when things go wrong. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. And, 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 but I, I will say this, having been there and having raced all over the world in different places, it's, it's as safe as it possibly could be their medical response time and the, and the, the, the effort they go to to have doctors in the helicopters and they have a portable hospital that moves from bivouac to bivouac and they, they, they do do their best. But when you think about the amount of miles that all of these riders, you know, there, I think, I don't remember exactly. I think it was like somewhere around 150 or 160 miles motorcycle riders, um, started this rally. And you think about each of them doing, you know, equivalent to almost a Baja 500 every day for the course of 12 days. Uh, that's a lot of, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time for things to go wrong. So when you look at it that way, actually not that much goes wrong, but you can never discount, you know, when, when someone loses their life. And unfortunately, uh, one rider did this year. I mean, it could be mechanicals. It can be your your body physically. Just the, the endurance required for that must be incredible. And not to mention navigational. And then you've got all the other vehicles around you. Yeah, there's there's all of that. And and a lot of times, and it's it's changed over the years. I mean, back when I was doing it, we were sleeping in tents every night, you know. And so we were, you know, racing, you know, bivouac to bivouac, and um, we didn't carry. Our, our sleeping stuff, the, the organization would take like a small box with the, you know, your, your tent and your sleeping bag. Um, and maybe, you know, a spare change of underwear. <laughs> and then, then, uh, you know, but it's gotten to the point now when it was in the, the, the race has moved. It was originally Paris to Dakar, um, because of some terrorism stuff and just things they couldn't control with some wars going on down there. They moved it over South America that changed the shape of the rally a little bit. So it wasn't so, it wasn't like the entire infrastructure was being moved in these giant trucks and aircraft. I mean, it was, they, they move a lot of the infrastructure of the rally with aircraft from place to place in South America. They were able to do it more using roads because there was actually some infrastructure in South America. And this year was the first year back in Saudi Arabia and uh, definitely more classical, like African style Dakar, um, with the stages and the, a lot of the sand and things that they had, um, the incredible, um, scenery, the, but some of the riders now are lucky enough to be able to sleep in a motorhome each night, mm. you know, as opposed to being on the ground. Although they did force them, uh, on one of the marathon stages, I think two of them to sleep on the ground, <laughs> you know, they, <laughs> just to they, add they, to they, the, the, the discomfort and challenge. They, I think they really want to bring that kind of, you know, some of the hardships back to the rally. And, you know, that's what like a lot of it that's, you know, when you look at, you know, sleeping on the ground and they have a class called the Molimoto, which is uh, it's guys that they don't have mechanics. Um, they're really limited on what stuff they can have. And they they do. They sleep on the ground. <laughs> they, they, don't, they do everything by themselves. It's, it's one man, one machine, and you're going to get yourself from the start to the finish. 
Do you know how many people are, are sort of involved in a Dakar now and how, and how much money is involved? Any idea? I, I have, I have, I haven't actually physically been on the rally for a while, but I, I will tell you even the time when I was doing it, it is, it is astronomical when you have, you know, five or six, you know, C-130 aircraft that are transporting, uh, a lot of the staff, a lot of the structures that, that go up at each, at each bivouac, um, you know, moving this hospital and then, you know, some of the smaller planes are actually medical planes that are there. Um, there's a giant, giant television and media presence that goes, each day, you know, that moves from location to location. And I, I think uh, now they've been able to put a lot of more of that in those big giant, you know, six by six trucks you see, you know, the, they were called T6 back in the day, T4 and T6, which are the giant support trucks. So I think some of that moves on the ground, but back in the day, everybody was, <laughs> there was a lot, of, a lot of airplanes flying around. And then not to mention the money that the teams, motorcycle and car teams spend to be there and to participate at a high level. It's like moving a small town from one place to another. If you, you move yeah. that kind of equipment. Hey, and all this started from one guy getting lost in the desert. Yeah, um, is uh, Terry Sabine. Um, and you can definitely, you know, if you want to read an interesting history lesson on, on you know, what his crazy idea, you know, his, his fascination with getting lost in the desert caused it, you know. And that's back in 1977. He was, he was doing another rally and fi finds himself lost in the Libyan desert, like you're saying, and then comes up with this idea. And they launched it in 78 and they've done it every year since then. They've only missed one year. And that was when you were mentioning the terrorism thing. Right. Right. And, uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's just amazing that it still, it still happens. I'm, I'm glad that there's places in the world that we can do this kind of stuff. Yeah. It's pretty amazing, you know, and, and with, um, with more concerns about environment and all the other concerns that we have in, in this world, it is surprising that, that a, um, a race this big still continues to go on it. And it's really great that it, that it does. What what is the connection in your mind with adventure riding and the Dakar? So when I was doing it, uh, especially you know a lot of the bikes were twin cylinder bikes, and and you know we were riding a a bike that had a motor that was you know it was a BMW GS motor, and Honda was racing the Africa Twin, Yamaha was racing the Tenerife. So you wonder about these names of some of your bikes uh, that that you're riding, where they where they come from, what it well, was old Dakar race bikes, you know, Suzuki had the DR big and, you know, now they're kind of getting that theme back into the, some of their V stroms. And, uh, so there, there's a, there's a tradition and a history. And, and I think in a couple of ways, you know, the manufacturers are, are there, you know, proving their bikes durability and proving the, the performance of their vehicle racing it at the, at the highest level. Um, and to some aspects, you know, when, when you as a, just a regular guy are watching these guys, these Dakar racers covering vast distances and riding through beautiful landscapes and sceneries, it's the stuff that you dream of, you know, when you're on your motorcycle and, you know, kind of to tie that, you know, it, it tied it all together. I think, you know, it would inspire some guys and, I, when I was racing, I would, <laughs> I would be back home in California and, you know, riding down a street in Long Beach and second street in Long Beach. And I'd see a guy with a GS who had replica painted his, his, uh, GS, like my, uh, Dakar race bike, you know, with the, with the BMW red, white, and blue colors, the little checkered flag at the time and the, the Galois colors, um, which was one of our big sponsors back then. Well, you were a factory rider for BMW. Yeah, from 99 till like 
2003, I believe it was. I, my, my career actually ended kind of in 2001. I actually, on the Dakar, had a pretty severe crash and, and, and really destroyed my wrists. Um, so I never, quote, recovered from that. <laughs> um, luckily, I could still ride, you know, almost as, <laughs> almost as well as I'd like. But, uh, um, yeah, so I was, it was, it, that was, and that was probably the pinnacle of my racing was being a true, you know, BMW Dakar factory rider. Wow, that, that's you know you're racing the race that is known for deaths, is known for damage, carnage of all kinds, and then you end up really kind of screwing yourself as far as being a racer goes on that race. How do you feel about that now? Um, it's 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 I I know as a racer I knew what I was getting into when I was doing it. I was very well aware of the risks I was taking and how dangerous it was. Um. But I always felt I was being, I mean, really, I mean, I wouldn't do it if I thought I was going to go kill myself. I was being, you know, as safe as I possibly could. But, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, stuff happens. And, you know, I just had a, I don't, it's one of the, it's one, it's one of the very few crashes where I can say I don't really know exactly what happened, why the bike did what it did and why I crashed. I mean, yeah, it was probably because I was going too fast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it did and I did tumbles and I don't know whether I hurt my wrist trying to hang on to the bike or when I was tumbling. But, you know, at that point it was like, uh, this, <laughs> something's not right. <laughs> but if you could go back would you, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change anything. I mean, go, I'd love I, mean to. I mean, let's say you're standing at that bike right now and you know, full well, you, you, you know, it's going to end the way it did. You still think it's worth it? You, um, no, you know, if you know that that's going to happen, you wouldn't do it. I don't think, Right. I mean, it's just, you, you, you just, you, you, you can't, I mean, at that level, you can't even have those kind of doubts. I mean, that's, and that's part of the mental training we work on with, with these guys. And in order for them to participate when, you know, when to, to want to do this, I, I ask these guys, you know, whether they're teaching young kids and stuff, it's like, do you really want to race motorcycles for a living? Do you, are you fully aware of the commitment you're, you're making, you know, because somebody had to ask me that and, and, and you don't just want to go in there blind, but you're asking, you know, as a, as a coach and a training, you're, you're asking guys to, 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 you know, kind of commit to a certain level. And, uh, and if there's, you know, at the levels that, that these guys are operating at that now, if there's fear or if there's any, any sort of, um, hesitation and stuff, they're, they're not going to succeed. So, but I think you ask any racer if they, you know, looking back, you know, if they were in that same position when they go back and do it again. Yeah. Cause they never expect bad things to happen. Well, we all know that, that motorcycling, I mean, getting up in the morning has its risk. Riding a motorcycle certainly has a risk to it. But you think of the average rider on the road, okay, and the skill level, the average rider. I'm talking average rider on the road of, yep. of an adventure bike. Compare that to a highly skilled rider like yourself or one of the races you train for the Dakar. What do you think the difference in risk is between those two? Or is there? It's It's the same. I, I honestly it's think it's, I really do think it's the same. Actually, I always tell people the most dangerous thing I've ever done in a motorcycle is ride it in California traffic splitting lanes. It is that I'm taking more chances by doing that than any time I ever did stuff out in the desert because there's so much more that's out of my control. Mm, that's just what I was going to say, uh, out of your control. It, yep. it's, it, it's, it's how much stuff, when these guys are racing at a high level, most everything is under their control. They decide when to hit the brakes. They decide, you know, to go, to go over the blind rise a little bit faster. You know, it, it's, it's, and it's really rare that, you know, 
I mean, in, in Dakar racing specifically, I mean, Baja is a whole different story and I've bounced off the side of cars down there and I've run into animals before that, you know, that's out of my control. But when you're just out there in kind of the desert and there's nothing out there, but you know, lizards and sand, you're kind of in control of your destiny at that point. Mm. But the other vehicles as well, you've got that. Yeah. Yeah. They're, but they, they're, we're all going the same direction, you know? You're generally going this. It's not like things are crisscrossing or, you know, you see it every once in a while. It makes for good TV clips for sure. <laughs> I mean, when when everything's going right, it's kind of boring television, you know, the, yeah. and, and, and that that race more than anything is a giant reality TV show. I mean, because they, they put people in an incredible situation of boiling pot for for stories and and um, and and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. it's a. Uh, it's that's a, the whole point of it, isn't it? I mean, that's why they make. That's how they make it the toughest race. By you not only put them in tough, tough environment, put you through the the tough stuff to race in, but make life tough. That's why there's so many miles and and so much work involved, rest time, etc. Right, right. And and back to the you know when we were talking about just like a regular rider, and we talk about you know skill because that's the other thing I do is the the you know off road training. And you said like I I said the skill level you know the 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 risk is the same. And, and when people, a lot of times, you know, I have a, I have a rating scale when somebody, you know, says, well, where, where do you think my ability levels on our website? We have kind of like, this is where Jimmy places skills. And, and most people like, they're like, well, I'm, I'm only a novice because I can do that. And I go, oh, oh yeah, yeah. And, and you start looking at what I expect out of, you know, as far as riding skills out of someone that's, that's, that's higher. And, and I put myself like very low on the, you know, I'm just barely stepping out of intermediate in my own scale, you know, and then, and I'm working with guys that, you know, sometimes they're up at this, this level that's incomprehensible for the regular, for the regular rider, but just these small steps you can take, it, it makes you a better rider, which in, in, in my world makes you much safer. And it's mostly because you become more aware of what you can't do. So you don't do it on accident. Hmm. What's the value in knowing where you are in the scale? Um, <laughs> so you slow down and be careful. Yeah, that makes very good sense because if you picture yourself as being this advanced rider, you're overconfident. Yeah. And you realize it's like, I don't have the bike control. I thought I had probably because I didn't know I can control the bike that way. And, and to roll back into our conversation about racing and stuff, this is what I stress with racers all the time. It's like, it's like, look, you, you first, you, you know, in order to finish first, you first have to get to the finish line. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we start working on, okay, let's take it in steps. First you have to finish. And then, and then even when we're practicing stuff at a high level, and I talk about how much these guys have to commit to, to, to really training and doing all this stuff. It's like, then we start working on figuring out how can you go that speed and ride at that level while being very relaxed and comfortable, you know? And, and, and because if you, if you're doing that, that at that relaxed comfort level, then you can kind of go up a little bit, you know? increase the intensity mm -hmm. and then, okay, now if you can do that, now we have to increase the intensity without losing our comfort. And that's how you, that's how you build speed. So you're always kind of racing at 90%, 80%. So you have something left if you need to pull it out, but you don't, you try not to use it. Well, we talked about, I mean, you mentioned about the connection between adventure riding. Is there still a connection between adventure riding and the Dakar? I, 
I, I definitely think there is just basically because, you know, you're, you're the, the places that they get to go and get to ride are places that most of us would love to be able to go and see. And I mean, a lot of, a lot of places, a lot of times you can, and a lot of times you can't because they're just so remote and dangerous and, <laughs> and it's difficult to get to these places. So you, you dream of doing that. Um, you look at even like Honda with the CRF 250L rally bike. That looks like the bike that Ricky just won the Dakar on, yeah, you know, so does. there's, there's there. I mean, and we just, we just did a, a bike test on that bike here with, with dirt bike test. And, and we kept talking about, you know, the connection between those two bikes and looks, but like they're, it, you know, one is a, is a very small, easy to ride adventure bike. The other thing is a purpose built racing weapon, <laughs> but, but, you know, Honda did a really good job at making that bike look like that. And so, and some of these companies still draw on that heritage and, and like with Suzuki and their V-Stroms, the new styling of, of some of those bikes, I was, I think they look great. And it, and it, it kind of takes you back to that era when I was, you know, when I was younger watching, you know, guys like Hubert Oriol racing, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying the the names right now are just kind of drawing a blank, but you know, Stefan Peter Hansel for sure racing the Yamaha, the, the Yamaha eight fifties, which were called Tenere's. He's Mr. Dakar, time. isn't he? He, well, he's been doing it for a long time. He was, he was the guy I really looked up to and, and tried to study when I was, when I was racing against him. And, uh, now he's just doing amazing stuff in the car as well. Mm-hmm. You mentioned about engine size and how, uh, well, like we've talked about this before, about how in- the engine size has changed. And it's had some sort of effect on, the, I guess, the relationship with uh, adventure riding. Yeah. So back in the day, the bikes that people were taking, I mean, they were taking these twin cylinder BMWs and, and, you know, uh, Yamaha, well, actually the Yamahas were a lot of the single cylinders. They were riding the TT 500s and, you know, you look at the early Dakar bikes and they were the bikes you would, you know, adventure riding wasn't coined as a term yet. It was just, I was going to go do some crazy thing on my big motorcycle put a huge gas tank on it and, you know, try to ride someplace. But it was, it was in the beginning, it was sort of a run what you brung class and it evolved into very specialized, you know, the Kajiva, the Kajiva elephants that were, that were built specifically for rally. My, my factory BMW rally bike was a work of art. Um, I think the valve covers and the decos on the tank were the only two things that you may be able to that were similar to anything that was sold on a production BMW, but they were, they were twin cylinder bikes and, and there were things that you could, that you could kind of draw a line to. It's like, Hey, that's like my, that's like the bike I have in the garage or, or whatnot. And then they started doing, they, they made it single cylinder only because I think they were worried about the speeds that the twin cylinder bikes could attain. And then, and then they started doing, uh, and then they moved it from, you know, a 700 CC limit down to a 450 CC limit. And, it was mostly because some of the manufacturers were kind of backing away from it and they go, Hey, every manufacturer makes a 450 CC bike. Maybe that will bring some more participation in, which it definitely has. Um, but it, I don't, I don't think, you know, a 450 CC adventure bike is yeah, maybe a little bit of a, a push, you know, as far as, you know, that's just not what most guys are thinking or looking at. Although, Hey, if they can go that fast across the desert, there 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 may be some capabilities still hidden in there. Mm, yeah, and, and I think people are starting to. There is a lot of uh, people looking at smaller bikes nowadays. I mean, it yeah. seems like we've went way up on on the CCs, and now it's sort of coming back down. At least the interest. For sure. I I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, kind of 
bit off more than they could chew with bikes and they learn and then they, they're, they're, you know, like you said, downsizing and, and smaller it's, and also the smaller things are a great way to get people to, to move up. And now you see this, this whole, before it was, it had to be above a thousand CCs. And now, you know, now you look at the popularity of this, the seven nineties and the six, the six nineties and seven Oh ones and whatnot. And so there's, there's, I mean, I think it's great for the market. You know, there's so many choices out there and, and the biggest mistake I see people make is, is buying, you know, buying the wrong bike, you know, not, not, not knowing what they really want. And, and it, it's like, uh, thank God for demo rides. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the Dakar's new venue? Uh, I, I uh, visually and, and, uh, and train wise and stuff, uh, I loved it. Um, you know, it, it went back to its roots of really having some tricky navigation and, and not having, you know, so, uh, nobody really had a home court advantage on that train, you know, where when they'd in, in Africa, anytime you were up in Northern, you know, up in Morocco and, and for the most part, a lot of the guys trained there and knew that area. Um, sometimes the courses because of just, uh, the certain countries they were going through always had to go the same way. So people started kind of getting a lockdown on where it was going to go. And, and this year for sure, Saudi Arabia, um, was different. Now I, I can't speak to the political, um, and the, and the, you know, all the stuff that goes on in that country. I really don't know or understand it that well. Um, but, uh, I haven't, you know, it's funny cause that was a big talk when, when ASO decided to move the rally there. But I haven't heard anything bad from any of the riders that I know and, and uh, you know, in any of their communication. They seem to – I know they love the deserts and and no matter where I went in the world, you know, when I was on my motorcycle and doing motorcycle thing, people are generally really good people and they, they enjoy you being there and seeing you despite, you know, what what nationality you're, you are or where you come from. Well, Jimmy, thank you very much. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I really, uh, really appreciate it. I'm getting a lot of interest in a lot of the stuff that I do from your audience. I think it's opening up um, the doors. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm an adventure rider, you know, no matter what. And I like, I like learning about stuff and uh, it's kind of cool to be on the show and share some of my experiences with your, uh, with your listeners. I've been speaking with Jimmy Lewis from his training grounds in the Nevada desert. Jimmy's website is jimmylewisoffroad.com. And of course, that link is in the show notes for this episode. just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Also, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at greenchiliadv.com. And Moto Breeze Chain Oilers at motobreeze.com. Hey, you do us a great favor. If anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime you see them anywhere, you mention that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. up another episode.
episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, of course, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Hey, remember, you can drop by our website and listen to all of our episodes, and more importantly, well, not more importantly, but you can see the show notes for each episode where we put notes, links, photographs, comments, things like that, and you can put your comments for the show notes um, for that particular show in there. So we'd love it if you drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, and check out the show notes. Don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It's the once-a-month roundtable talks for motorcycle travel. We have a lot of fun. There's a group of us that sit around and talk on that. You need to subscribe separately for that. You can find out more information, again, at our website. And last thing, we would love it if you would help support the show. We've built it on a model of some advertising and listener support to make their whole thing work. Drop by our website, click on support, and have a look at what we've got there. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you're not socked in with snow and ice. Talk to you next week. I'm Sam Manicum. I'm a traveler, motorcyclist and author, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Hey!